This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have Cynthia Rendo. Uh, Cynthia, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. So tell me a little bit about, you know, who are you and what do you do? The million dollar question. So I'm Cynthia Rando. I'm a human factors uh, engineer by trade. I also operate as a human factors expert witness. Um, I started my career at NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas as a human factors engineer working with the space station program. So I'm one of those unicorns in the forest in the world of human factors where I wasn't necessarily specialized into one specific thing but um, dealt with a broad scope of things including human safety and um, root cause analysis type um, efforts including design for the crew members and space hardware. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what, uh, and I can see a space station being an environment where the margin of error is small and the the consequence of error is huge. Absolutely. It's one of the most hostile environments you could ever have to design for in the most stressful safety type environment because um, there's so many unknowns that it's really hard to predict for every scenario. I know NASA's done a great job over the last 50 years of building experience, but you know, I liken it to a medical environment where it's a very stressful environment and one thing out of place or designed incorrectly um, can be catastrophic in terms of life loss and that's the same for NASA only there, there's just no room for error because there's too many unknowns. So what all did you do with respect to the space station? Oh my goodness. Um, so I've built hardware, so I have hardware flying in space that the crew uses every day in their mission up there. I actually helped uh, define like the volume of the new space space vehicle, Orion, with, with some of the teams at NASA. We've worked with training and procedures, also cautions and warnings, you know, what's intuitive to the crew, what actually causes safety incidences when you have too many, watch out for this, don't do that, scissors are sharp type warnings. Um, but everything under the sun, including usability testing, you know, I had the, the privilege to do. So they put me through my paces, that's for sure, and I got some great experience. But even with people as, as trained and educated as astronauts, you still would have warnings and stuff and instructions? Absolutely, because if you think about it, you're in a very limited, confined space environment, so there's a lot of risk in having a lot of hardware and a lot of things and a lot of people moving around in a very tight space and a lot of orchestrated activities. And so you might be trained on things, but it, you you may not use it for month to months later, so it's not necessarily something you would remember. So you have to make sure that every safety precaution is taken. And how did you go then from working with NASA to working with lawyers? <laughs> um, so it's completely accidental. No, I, you know, I always knew I wanted to run my own business. So about five years ago, I opened Sofix Synergistics, which is a full-service human factors consulting firm in Houston. And as part of um, that effort, uh, we started taking on uh, cases with expert witness duties as part of our service offerings. What else do you do besides the expert witness part? So we work with a lot of different companies. We're industry 
diverse and agnostic, really. Um, so we work with the medical industry to help um, companies develop and design safe and usable medical devices as well as hospital environments, workflow, process, and procedures. We still work with NASA. NASA's a client, so we help them more with the strategy of, of human-centered design and also communications with the agency. Uh, we also work with tech-type companies like Google and Oculus, helping them design better products for people. And then, of course, you know the law firms on many different cases, including you know driver distraction and injury accidents, product liability, um, those types of issues. So, what is human factors? <laughs> the other million-dollar question. <laughs> well, sometimes more than a million dollars. Actually. Right. Right. Um, human factors is an extremely broad science. It deals with how people interact and perceive their environment, the things that they use in the environment, and also how they interact and work with other people in tasks and things of that nature. And so it, it really comes down to two things. Human factors helps people optimize what they do well, whether it's through design or understanding of human behavior and also your physical body shape and limitations, and also mitigate what we don't do well to avoid risk of injury or human error. Can you give some examples that would, you know, like in a real case kind of things that you would look at? Sure. Um, so let's let's take driving since driving accidents are pretty prevalent and they happen pretty frequently. Um, you know, driving perception, a lot of people have issues on the roadway taking turns. And so that is considered a very high cognitive load task. And so when we look at issues where people may have caused an accident by taking a left-hand turn, um, the immediate response is, oh, that left-hand driver violated, you know, the thoroughfare of oncoming traffic that had the right way. It must be their fault. Well, not necessarily. And so when we look at the process and procedure that the person took in taking a turn, we also look at the visibility of oncoming traffic. What could that person or reasonable driver have been able to see um, in, in a perfect, you know, if all conditions were perfect? And did they take the right steps? Did they did they judge the traffic correctly? And were they able to see all the risks in front of them to be able to make um, the right choices? So how do you figure out then, you know, retrospectively, mm -hmm. what could someone have perceived had they been paying attention before, let's say, making a left-hand turn? So it's a combination. We personally at our firm don't do accident reconstruction, so we work really closely because there's often an accident reconstructionist on the case. So we work with them to understand timing and speed of parties involved, and then we will go out and actually conduct a site visit to look at the environment, the design of the roadway, where the vehicles were, and also the vantage points for all the drivers or entities involved if there was a pedestrian or something what could everybody see from their vantage point in a reasonable fashion and then also you know what was the traffic like what was the time of day what was the weather like when we look at all of those pieces to sort of deduce chain of events and how this error actually occurred and it's and it is always way more than somebody just did something stupid excuse my language <laughs> and and purposely cut somebody off it's it's usually never that simple and so how do you figure out like the average amount of time it takes for someone to see something process and then react to it 
That's a very complex, convoluted type scenario. It's because not always a second and a half? <laughs> no, no, that is the average. I, I actually just had this conversation. I was deposed last week. <laughs> so, no, 1.5 seconds is the average of every reaction time. And so when we look at reaction time, one of the, the biggest influences of reaction time is does that person expect that event to happen? And so in, in you know, some cases, let, let's say you're driving down a roadway, somebody pulls out for you in front of you unexpected, you didn't see them, you didn't expect it, your reaction time is going to be much slower, most likely, than that average reaction time. Now let's take the converse. You're coming down the road, you see somebody acting kind of strange at an intersection, you're not sure what they're going to do because of their behavior. You have some, some expectation that they might do something, so you're a little bit more prepared for that that incident to occur so your reaction time might be faster than that average that makes sense because like well let's say i'm driving down the street and i see kids with a ball on the side of the road right you know uh, i know they shouldn't but i know kids tend to do things like run out in the street without looking right so i usually have my foot off the accelerator not braking but ready to go keeping an extra eye on not just the road in front of me but those kids whereas I did a thing uh, a few months ago. Was actually got to drive an eighteen-wheeler on a closed course, even oh, no, though I don't kidding. have a CDL. <laughs> and one of the things they had is they had a, a test dummy out there in dark clothes, uh, luckily on the shoulder of the road. But I was not expecting it, and I don't. There's no way I could have reacted. Right. Absolutely. And you also you bring up two two great points. One with the the children example of risk, our our perception of risk. And so if we have been in similar situations or we know there is high odds that something is going to happen that's unsafe, whether it be with children or not, we're also a lot more alert and attuned to the situation at hand and paying attention. Similarly, similarly, if we have driven a roadway a thousand times and nothing has ever happened, our, our risk perception is lower. We think it's pretty safe and nothing's going to happen to us on this roadway. So we're less um, attentive to our situation. But you also bring up another great point with the, the dark clothes and on roadways. It is really hard to distinguish that, especially in nighttime driving with headlights because our headlights don't project as far as we think they do and our ability to see doesn't project as far as we think it does and so human gait being able to see that clearly and also retroreflective material becomes incredibly important in our ability to even perceive somebody and it actually happened on my way here today jogger was out at 5 a.m pitch black and i didn't see them until they were two-thirds across the street and it's only because i caught the back of their reflective material on their sneaker moving and then it took me a minute to perceive it was a person. And so even then, you can see it. You still have to take some time to process it. And then you have to decide what the appropriate action to do. And that all takes time and goes into that reaction time number. So again, it's very dependent on the case and the variables at play. And you have to look at everything to make a decision on where it's most likely in that range. And for our listeners who are joggers, they do sell clip-on LED lights that yes. blink. They do <laughs> Wear them. <laughs> Retroreflective jogging yes. vests, uh, headlamps. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't expect people to be able to see you in the dark. Yeah, they're they're extremely helpful because we are not able to perceive you. So, what are some other things you can do? You know, human factors that are useful. You know, to us as trial lawyers. I mean, so talk about perception, reaction. What are other things you look at? 
Sure. So, you know, when we, we talk about incidences, you know, personal injury comes in many flavors depending on what, what the issue at hand is. But if you think about slips, trips, and falls, how do they happen? What are the environmental conditions that led to that? Even the design, let's, let's say somebody fell down a flight of stairs and got severely injured. You know, how are the stairs designed? You know, were they the appropriate um, measurements to match our gait and expectation of pattern to walk upstairs? Uh, when you talk about medical injury, we look a lot at the medical design, the design of medical devices. We also look at process and procedure in, in hospital rooms and also, you know, workload and team dynamics and also, you know, training. But training is kind of the, always the last area we look at because it's usually not the, the true root cause. It's usually what gets put in place to mitigate risk. Can you say the word root cause? What do you mean by root cause? <laughs> the true causal factor, and it's usually not one either, but there's usually a predominant causal factor that literally drives the the end outcome or injury, uh, depending on the case. And so a lot of times you'll hear the words human error used as the validated reason for an accident to occur. If you hear this, this is, this is not a root cause, it's an outcome. The human making a mistake in committing an act, whether it's an injury or just a mistake, um, is is the last chain in a link of events to fail. So it usually takes 10, 15 things to happen before we actually make a mistake. We're very, we're actually very adaptable, but and it can go as far as like going back to if you think about product liability, the original manufacturing plan for a product. How was it designed? Did it have user testing? Did they do a full user risk analysis on the, this product to really understand the risks that it posed to the consumers? And even then, when it went to market, did they do their homework and check in with their consumers to see if there were injury, any injuries being reported? And what did they do with that information? You know, was it redesigned? Was it labeled? Were, were instructions changed? And all of these things go into what we call root cause analysis. We, we look to the very, very beginning to truly understand an incident or an accident. And so one of the things we try to do at our firm is to try to do our own hypothetical root cause analysis in every case so sure. we kind of know where we're aiming. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking, commercial motor vehicle, and product liability cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We would be honored to review the case in detail, discuss where we believe we can add value, and create a mutually beneficial partnership. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. How would one conduct that? You know, let's say we had a, an automobile crash, a company vehicle, let's say, runs a stop sign and plows into somebody. Sure. Uh, the easiest way to say, oh, it's the driver's fault, he ran a stop sign. If you wanted to go back and do a root cause analysis as to why did this driver run a stop sign, what, what would you do? So it takes a lot of different steps, and unfortunately, we don't always have power of control of when we get called in, and so it's often... You know, we go through paperwork first, but ideally, we'd love to be able to visit the site of the accident. You know, sometimes 
with a reconstruction accident reconstructionist reporter without you know basically recreate the scene um, as accurately as we can to get a thorough understanding of all, where all the parties were at certain points in um, on time on the timeline of the accident then we also look let's say it's a driving accident um, let's say um, somebody somebody was involved in an accident for distracted driving we also look at what they had actually in their car what were they doing in their car did they have um, did they have a cell phone that were they were using were they using navigation was the navigation built into their car or was it GPS did they have it in the hand and were taking eyes off the road or was it in the dashboard and, and they had some of their visual field obstructed um, similarly we look at all the parties in the case like that um, and then, again, we go the next step, you know, with the depositions, you know, we thoroughly comb those to get an understanding of everybody's perspective of how they saw the event transpired. And again, it, it's, a, it's a faulty process in a sense that not every eyewitness testimony is completely accurate. So you're looking for the, the, the best line of facts lining up in corroboration with each other that, that make the most sense in terms of probability based off of what you know as a human factors, you know, expert, whether it's a question of reaction time or perception performance, whether speed was involved or not, just understanding what the facts are telling you and where they align and where they don't. That seems like a way to get to the immediate cause, why the driver ran the stop sign at that second. But how about doing the root cause analysis of figuring out why was the driver in a position to make that mistake? Oh, well, so for us, it gets to the root cause because we're also trying to understand behaviorally what this this driver, you know, in the case of driving, you know, was actually attenuating to, let's say it's an intersection, you know, what were they doing as they were, they, what were they doing? What were they thinking? What were they seeing? as they were leading up to the intersection and then again what was going on as they were actively making a turn let's say you know across the street and and what could they have seen what could they have actually seen versus what somebody thinks they should have been able to see if that makes sense but again it's it's dissecting the actions the behavior as well as the cognitive processes to know what was possible but or what wasn't based off of the actual physical environment. Right. I guess I'm thinking of root cause analysis differently than you are. Okay. I'm thinking more about looking at the employer and, you know, what steps did the employer do or not do that could have... Oh, absolutely. And so for product liability, I think that that example probably gets well, to Well, I was talking to... about like a, like a truck crash. Like okay. A, a company driver. Sure. I mean, you have an employee that runs a stop sign. Mm hmm Okay. Why did the employee... They say it's a distracted driver. Why did the employee choose to drive distracted? Sure, absolutely. I mean, if, if you did the employee knowingly disregard a risk, did the employee? Most people know that driving distracted is not a good idea. But do they know Correct. the magnitude of the risk? Do they realize it, how long? How long is are my eyes really off the road when I do a certain thing? Right. How far do I really travel at a given right. speed? When I go put my eyes back on the road, is there a period of time that takes me to reorient myself to what I'm seeing with the driving task? Right. Does that change my reaction times? I mean, sure. You know, what did they know, and why do they know or not know that things to figure out why did they sure. get there? Do you all do any sure. of that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And so I was probably giving you more like the civilian driving case. So if we, if we think of people who are driving, you know, whether they're they're driving trucks across the country delivering products or whatnot, we actually had a case where um, a truck actually broke down that was you know a commercial truck um, 
in a in a in a bad part of the highway and then they left the vehicle unattended so that it became a safe an unintended like unattended safety hazard for right. other drivers and again this would go to your point you know this guy was employed there's were there training you know manuals in place did they have a clear policy and procedure about what to do when the car broke it down because this person left it left it unattended and then came back later and so, again, it's, you know, what were the policies, the procedures, and the protocols of the company that led to this, this person potentially committing the risk? Or was this person ever trained at all? Right. And so. And some of the, I don't know, struggle we're having on cases is we, we have a lot of cases where distracted driving seems to be the immediate cause of somebody uh, causing a collision. Sure. Um, you know, they're not falling too closely they either run a stop sign or they don't they have enough falling distance but they still don't break and they were in somebody what are some things employers can do you know to keep their employees from driving distracted so so this is a tough one because it's a it's a it's it's a a condition of control but i think too we're we're up against a fight with technology integration into vehicles and then time is money mantra with companies and wanting let's say deliveries for example i think it's a great example in terms of like tracking packages or updating systems even cop cars now have computers and laptops in the car and that's an actual very dangerous situation because you are actively diverting from the road. So if I were to simply answer, you know, companies would ask drivers not to do this while they were driving ever, you know, pull off the road, be in a stop position, safe yourself from not being a hazard, don't pull off on a highway side, side, um, uh, emergency lane, excuse me, right. where somebody could hit you or you could cause an accident to other people. So teaching them the right way and when to use the technology versus trying to you know, save time and money and get things right. done while you're driving and multitasking because the, the, uh, you know, the farce there is that you aren't able to multitask. You're only able to switch your attention between things and you're never paying 100% attention to any one thing when you do that. So, does human factors involve uh, analyzing training programs? Yes, absolutely. So, what do you need to do if you want to train someone on how to do something? What are kind of the steps that an entity needs to take to do that? So, and this doesn't always happen, but the, well, supposed to. Yeah, the organization should understand how the employees are doing the job today, and this can be kind of a touchy subject because nobody wants to be watched by the boss to analyze how you're doing your work. So, bringing in a third party is always helpful there, so you can get a true sense of how they need to do their job, so that there's no risk of repercussion to the employees. Once you get an understanding of how they're doing their job and where there's um, a difference from a safe procedure and unsafe, understanding why those people are, are making those deviations. There's there's always a critical reason why because it's either the process of the procedure doesn't account for something and maybe it's a step that we do cognitively and not physically that it doesn't acknowledge, but they're, they're not necessarily doing these um, I'll say deltas, <laughs> to be unsafe. They're doing them because they need a workaround because something isn't working for them in the process of the procedure. But ultimately, it could lead to an accident, right? Right. And so understanding all those elements before you define a training plan or a procedure is essential for organizations. Okay. 
So once you figure out, okay, this is how people are doing things, this is what we want to change, this is why they may be doing it the wrong way, what's the next step? Also understanding the, maybe it's the equipment that they're working within or the people that they're working um, with is understanding where there might be needed design changes for them to work safer and faster. And also, you know, just from a, like a team dynamic and workload and stress, you know, maybe you need more people to offload the situation and make okay. it safer. Now, once someone decides what they want to train somebody, is there, do you all look at how the training is done and when it, you know, what, it, what you need to do to make it actually effective training? Yeah, I mean, it, there's a sliding scale, right, depending on criticality of task and, and risk involved. And so the riskier something is and the more critical something is, the more you want to do hands-on training to train people. And, and I'm not going to necessarily say that you have to be an expert in everything to be safe. That's not true. But for those really critical and safety hazardous situations, you want the behavior to be almost innate. Because if it's not in an emergency situation, we're going to do something that's unsafe. And that's just the nature of the beast because you're not trained to a level where it's automatic or intuitive. Can you think of any cases you've worked on that would be interesting to our listeners just to kind of illustrate how lawyers can use human factors? Well, <laughs> driving driving cases are always a number one because they're so common, but I feel like we've talked a lot about driving. But, you know, I'll bring up a product liability case that we had that in, involved a consumer product that was marketed to adults. Okay. Unfortunately, the way the product was designed was so attractive to little children that the children ended up becoming the primary users despite all of the company's efforts to say this product isn't for kids. Unfortunately, in this case, it was um, very powerful um, earth uh, neodymium magnets, and okay. if you've ever used those, they are some of the world's most strongest magnets, and unfortunately, these were very small pieces for the adult stress toy, and, um, kids would swallow them. and the kids would swallow them, and so this poor little child swallowed a number of them where they got caught in his internal organs and adhered to them. Them to where he suffered some pretty substantial internal damage, and so my my long point here is that um, you know there was a lot of areas where this company could have taken action regarding the design to safe people and unintended consequences once you know these events are, are occurring you have responsibility and so from a human factors perspective they could have helped with understanding the design or what what issues the company had with the design if we were talking about law firms also labeling and packaging how could you design a safer package and a better label to be clear in terms of the safety issues um, around that that product yeah, we see that a lot with, let's say, uh, vaping. Well, vaping's mm. a bad idea to begin yes. with, and that's something that was sold yeah. as safe that right. was causing all kinds of problems. But we've had a number of cases with people have a vape battery in their pocket. Oh, wow. And it catches on fire. They explode. Oh, pocket see, I didn't know awful, that. <laughs> awful things. And, you know, the someone had no warnings at all. Some have, like, well, don't keep it in your pocket along with something else. Right. But they don't say, or else it will catch on fire and burn you really badly in places you don't want and actually that's an important point um, you know there's standards like everything and there's standards for good caution and warning labels and it's and part of it is being able to explain the risk 
uh, to a certain degree of understandability, and hopefully I'm not making up words, um, that the person using it understands the risk as it pertains to them and all the cases that this could probably be a bad idea. Right, it can't just be don't do this. Right. It has to be don't do this because if you do something really bad that's going to happen right. to you, like you're going to die, you're going right. to get burned. Right, and this is one area. Labeling is hard because we as human beings are, are really bad at, uh, at seeing risk and how it pertains to us. And so um, it's, it's really difficult to convince people via labeling that um, behave, like using this product could be bad if they've never had an experience with something similar or that product hurting them or someone that they know. It, it, it could very well be super dangerous, but if it's, they've never experienced it, the odds that they will believe the label, and if it's poorly written, you know, becomes less. That's interesting, and why is it that people, I, I, one example I can think of is for years and years and years, automakers and safety advocates that seatbelts save lives, you can get killed or catastrophically injured if you're not wearing a seatbelt, and yet seatbelt mm -hmm. rates remain pretty low. Then they passed a law saying you can get a ticket and pay a hundred or two hundred dollars for not wearing your seatbelt, and seatbelt rates went way up. <laughs> yeah. Why is it that the risk of dying or being paralyzed would not motivate someone to do it, but the risk of getting a ticket for a hundred, two hundred dollars would? So it's it's multi-factor. So in in your example, there's a consequence, and that consequence is more painful to me than you know not wearing it in the car. And so but either I'm way, there's to, a con I mean the consequence of being in a wheelchair versus that. But I have to believe the consequence, right? And so if it's never happened, I don't know anybody that didn't wear a seatbelt that died. I don't believe that the consequence is going to happen to me. I'm invincible, right? I'm never gonna get a wreck, but I might get pulled over. Right. But if you put a law in place that says, yay, verily, you're gonna owe me two hundred if I find that you're not wearing the seatbelt, well, odds are you might find me not wearing the seatbelt and I'm going to have to pay. That's painful. I don't want that. Right. But, you know, taking a step back, you know, the, the, we have three ways we prevent injuries and risk. We design it out, we guard against, put a barrier, um, or we label or warn. And so this is where labeling becomes the, the least most effective option, and we try to avoid it at all costs, but we have to use it where some risk can't be designed out. And so in this world of um, protecting yourself from liability, uh, labeling has been overused right. and inadequately used and incorrectly used. So we've become um, sort of uh, numb to the seriousness of labels for some things. So there's there's one issue with, with caution and warning labels. And then it's also our expectations that we talked about um, before. You know, if I if I have an expectation that I could get harmed, I'm going to pay more attention to the safety information. If I don't believe because I've never seen, I'm not going to look at it entirely. I mean, how many times have you had a case where you've picked up a new item or a product or TV or game? Do you read the safety information with everything you buy? No, of course not. No, because exactly. It's too much effort. And so the barrier for us to do that, to be safe, is too much versus it's never happened. I, I, I more believe that I'll be fine, and I know how to use this product from experience. Right. So this has been really interesting. If one of our users wants to get a hold of you because they want to follow up and ask more questions or maybe even hire you on a case, how do how would they find you? 
Sure, they can contact us. We have every social media channel possible through sofixsynergistics.com. You can also personally email me at Cynthia, C-Y-N-T-H-I-A, Rando, R-A-N-D-O, at sofixsynergistics.com. And that's S-O-P-H-I-C, synergistics.com? Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking, commercial motor vehicle, and product liability cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We would be honored to review the case in detail, discuss where we believe we can add value, and create a mutually beneficial partnership. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.